Good afternoon, brothers. It's my delight to be sharing again with you from God's Word. Our text for today is found in the seventh chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10. This is the story of the healing of the centurion's servant, which I trust and pray will bring us much profit today. We're looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. This is God's holy word. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are all good, all wise, having all power and authority, authority together with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, ruling from your right hand. So Lord, would you rule in our hearts by your word today, by your Spirit's work among us? Would you make us submissive to everything that you would say unto us? Open our eyes to behold the beauty of Christ, the beauty of your word. We pray for your assistance now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Faith. It's essential to our religion. It's a preeminent idea. It's the beginning, the middle, and end of this journey we're on. We're told in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We're told by Christ that faith that's as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. Faith. It's an amazing, powerful, life-changing concept. And as Christians, we speak much of faith. We pursue faith. We want to grow in faith. But I think sometimes it's often easy to forget that we misunderstand what is faith. Because faith itself, we hear it so much, often it can sometimes be a bit of a nebulous or ethereal concept to us. And like with any concept that's conceptually driven, it is helpful on the one hand to have um, helpful descriptions of it. So we see descriptions of faith in, say, a book like Romans. But God accommodates us so beautifully in his word that he doesn't just give us technical descriptions of these core important things, but he gives us helpful pictures and illustrations and stories and examples. 
And I believe what we have in our text today before us is one of these illustrations, a portrait of great faith. We are given a list of many examples of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and this story is just another example that we have recorded in scripture of what faith looks like lived out in practice. Therefore, I believe this text will be an encouragement to our faith to see how wonderfully Christ responds to the faith of the centurion. And when I was initially looking at this text, I thought my sermon idea might be something like how God still blesses our weak faith and our timid faith, how we sometimes struggle to come to him, like the centurion in this story. But amazingly, Christ calls this great faith. This story isn't an illustration of weak but trusting faith. It's an illustration of great faith. Therefore, I believe that this will be a tremendous encouragement to us as we seek to imitate the faith that we see in this centurion. And there are two things about faith and the faith exemplified by the centurion in this passage that I wish for us to see today. The first is that I want us to see how his faith is contrite. It's a humble, lowly faith, seeing his unworthiness in the light of Christ. Secondly, I want to see that his faith was a convinced faith. He was convinced of Christ's power and Christ's authority. And then I want to see how Christ responds to this faith, that he first responds with a commendation, praising the faith of the centurion, and then he responds in bringing consolation by healing the centurion's service. So the big idea I want for us to see in this passage today is that a contrite and convinced faith receives Christ's commendation and consolation. A contrite and convinced faith receives Christ's commendation and consolation. So before we look at this in particular, let's just set the scene a bit. We're in the book of Luke, the seventh chapter, and you can roughly divide Luke into three primary sections. We look at the birth story of Jesus in Luke 1 to 2. Then chapters 3 to 9, where we find ourselves, records Jesus' Galilean ministry. That is where he's ministering in his home region of Galilee. And this is the big section before we turn in chapter 9 and start to see Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem and his journeying there and his ministry there, culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we have these events recorded here. We read in verse 1, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, these sayings, referring to chapter 6, which is that famous Sermon on the Plain, familiar to us because of its similarity to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And so we come into chapter 7, and it says that he heads in to Capernaum which was really the center of Jesus' Galilean ministry, and by this point, quite possibly his hometown. It seems like Jesus most likely moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is where he's ministering. And now, who are the characters in this narrative that received Jesus' ministry? We're going to see the centurion, and then proxy, the servant. And a centurion is a word loosely related to a hundred cent, And so this centurion is a Gentile, a Roman officer in the military, the very people that are persecuting or oppressing the Jews. And he was a commander of approximately 100 men, the word centurion, give or take. It doesn't have to be exact. 
And so we see the centurion who seems to have been something of a proselyte to the Jewish religion. Uh, he says, they say he loves the nation. He even built the synagogue. And so we see that this is an outsider, someone who's a stranger to the covenants of promise. So I think this picture is even more encouraging to us, and especially for those of us that maybe at times feel like outsiders, even in our very own churches. But then there's also the servant, the one who receives the healing. The centurion makes the request, and the servant receives the healing. And we read in verse 2 that this servant was dear unto the centurion. And you may have a translation that says the word slave instead of servant. It is the same Greek word for a slave, a servant in this passage. But I think for us, the word servant is more helpful just because of the various associations that we bring about with the concept of slavery. Because you see, in scripture, very often, servants are almost like household members. When we see Paul instructing household relationships in both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, we see him addressing servant-master relationships in these household passages, husbands to wives, parents to children, and servants to masters. So we can almost think of this servant as a family member, a family member, a close household member. He was dear and loved, and he was sick. And far from just valuing this servant for his services, the centurion truly loved him as a person. We also have... Um, a parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, which tell us that the sickness that the servant was afflicted with was the palsy, something like a paralysis. Uh, very possibly he suffered something akin to a stroke and was paralyzed and near death, it says. And because Luke is our text today, we don't have time to investigate the parallels. There is a harmonization issue that some bring up between who actually spoke to Jesus but if you're interested in that, any evangelical commentary will deal very adequately with that problem. Also, Matthew adds an extended ending, which adds a beautiful prophecy of using the centurion as an example of how the faith is going to come to the Gentiles, and they'll be in heaven, though some Jews may not actually make it. So the heart of this story is this interaction between the centurion and Christ, the faith of the centurion and the response of Christ. So looking at the centurion's faith, we want to see first, first of all, faith's contrition. Faith's contrition. We see that this centurion had contrite faith, a humble and lowly understanding, um, a valuation of self as unworthy. And we see this in very stark contrast to the pride of the Jewish elders that go to Jesus. Uh, we read in verse 3 that when the centurion heard of Jesus... He sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And being a Gentile, the centurion would have known that Jews and Gentiles are not supposed to interact that easily. And so perhaps in order to get a more uh, strong reaction from Christ, he sends to him Jewish elders, those of Christ's own race and religion, thinking they might have more clout or pull with him. And we see why these Jewish elders were probably so keen to do this request for the centurion is that it says that he had built them a synagogue. Now, uh, to build a whole church for a church is the type of donor that men like these Jewish elders would probably have wanted to keep happy. And so we read in verse 4 that they besought Christ instantly, saying that he, that is the centurion, was worthy for whom Christ 
should do this, for he loveth our nation and has built us a synagogue. He's worthy, they say. This man is worthy to be ministered to by Christ. This is quite the statement. They're trying to build him up to Christ, saying this man is a believer. He loves our nation. He's been charitable. He's built us a church. He's a good person. He deserves for you to minister to him. But should this impress Christ? This is exactly the opposite of the humble and contrite faith that pleases God. And so easily do we forget that all's of grace. Romans 11:25 reminds us who hath first given to God that it should be recompensed unto him. No matter how many good works you do, whether you build a whole church with your money, you can never place God in your debt. God is a debtor to no man. We're never worthy of his blessings. Never. These Pharisees or Jewish elders have the wrong perspective. But amazingly, even with their poor motives, we read in verse 6 that Jesus went with them. Jesus still goes to do good, even when people have bad hearts. And so how differently is the humility we see in the centurion with his contrite faith? Far from calling himself worthy, he says through his friends that he sends to Christ in verse 6, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. I'm not worthy, is the centurion's refrain. I'm not worthy to go to you, and I'm not worthy for you to come unto me. And we don't know exactly how much this centurion understood or not of, the, of Christ's divinity, the vast gap between God and man, but he recognizes something of it. And this is an example for all of us that we need to recognize that vast difference between God and man. God is the creator. We are mere creatures made from dust. And not just creatures made from dust, but sinful creatures who've rebelled against our almighty maker. We're unable, unwilling to go to God by our nature, and we're totally undeserving for him to come to us. But yet in his great mercy, Christ did come. He did take on our humanity and came to bear sin, to reconcile us to God because he's the only worthy one. He is our mediator. And we need a mediator to go to God. And it seems whether intentional or not, but there's almost a picturing of this in this very text. The centurion, seeing his unworthiness, recognizes that he wants to send people he considers more worthy than himself to go between him and Christ. He sends the Jewish elders. But truly, we, we all know that no person can mediate for another we're all sinners. We needed a perfect person, a perfect mediator, Christ, the God-man. He is worthy to stand before God on our behalf. And to try to go to God without a mediator is like trying to stare at the sun with your naked eyes. Our eyes aren't worthy to behold the brightness of the sun. And do you remember uh, a couple years ago, there was that big solar eclipse? And I know particularly where I was living at that time on the West Coast, it was coming right into line. But even with the sun blocked almost fully by the moon, you still couldn't look at it. You would have been blinded. You had to buy special eclipse glasses to mediate the power of the sun to your very eyes. And in the same way, we can never stand mediating with our own merits before that all-consuming fire, the God 
of the heavens. We need the worthy mediator. If you're holding on to your lifestyle, your morality, your family values, your church attendance, as the means of finding standing with God, you will be cast aside. So you need to relinquish all thoughts of self-worthiness, all thoughts of earning your way to heaven and obtain and seek after that contrite faith that recognizes that I am not worthy, that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So do you have Christ as your mediator? Do you go to God in his name? This is the truly humble and contrite faith that goes to God in Christ. And not only was the centurion's faith contrite, but it was also confident. It was convinced And so we looked at faith's contrition, but I want us to see now faith's conviction. That this centurion, in point two, was fully convinced in Christ's power and authority as Lord. Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And part of believing on Christ as Lord is acknowledging him as Lord believing and trusting, being fully convinced of his power and his authority. And so in our text, we see the centurion's conviction in Christ's power and authority. We read in verse 6, He confesses, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. He's fully convinced that Christ can merely speak a word from a distance and heal a man who's been paralyzed. An incredible acknowledgement of power, divine power. But not only does he believe that Christ has the power to affect this, he believes that Christ also has the authority to command it. And this is the illustration that we see um, in the centurion's words in verse 8. He says, for I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, saying to one, go and he goeth, and to another, come and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And This idea of being under authority is not meant to depreciate Christ's authority, but to recognize authority lawfully given. He's saying, I'm a man under authority, even though he had authority over a hundred men, but he's acknowledging that this authority was given to him by a higher authority, perhaps a general or commander. In the same way, this is a beautiful confession of Christ having that delegated authority as man from God the Father that he would have authority on earth to forgive sins as the divine son of God. Again, we don't know exactly how much of this the centurion comprehended at this point. And though though the centurion had authority to command a hundred men, Christ, we know, has authority to call 12 legions of angels. Though the centurion's word could move men here and there, Christ's word spoke the universe into existence. Christ has ultimate power, ultimate authority. And even though Christ, when he is our Lord and has this authority and power, we still somehow refrain often from going to him. We don't look to him in our need. We have a self-sufficiency stemming from our pride that doesn't want to ask for help. We're like children who like to take matters into their own hands, deal with their own problems, and then get into messes. And for you guys who are parents, how often do you say something like this to your children? Why didn't you just come to me? Why didn't you ask me? Now that you've retaliated against your sibling, I'm going to need to punish you. Why, instead of asking for help to pour the juice, you wouldn't have made a mess everywhere? Just ask. 
And we respond the same way. And even though parents and earthly authorities can make mistakes and err in many ways, God is the perfect, wise, heavenly Father who never errs, never makes mistakes. So how much more ought we to go to him in all our needs, in all our desires, to go to our loving heavenly Father, to trust him, to act on our behalf? So contrite faith recognizes our weakness and need of help, and convinced faith then looks up and goes to Christ, goes to God through him to find help. We need both contrition and conviction if we are going to have great faith. If you're an unbeliever, this means sensing your unworthiness, your sinfulness, but then looking to Christ as your only means of hope, salvation, and forgiveness. And if you're a believer, you still need daily to look to Christ for forgiveness, to acknowledge your unworthiness and need of him. So let's go to him as to a kind father. This is to exercise contrite but convinced faith. Now let's see how Christ responds to this faith. Our faith just doesn't sit alone, but it elicits a response from the Lord. And we'll see that he responds with both commendation and consolation. So firstly, Christ's commendation. We see in this passage that faith pleases Christ. And I think this is an essential point for us to grasp and something that we often miss that I think will be really helpful to us today. It's that our contrite and convinced faith pleases Christ and is praised by Christ. Look at verse 9. We read, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Christ marvels at the centurion's faith. To marvel is to admire or to wonder at, and then he praises the faith. And we combine these, that sense of admiration with a praising you could say that that is the picture of taking pleasure in. Uh, if you like hiking and are on a high peak, looking out at a beautiful viewpoint, you will be filled with a sense of wonder. And then you might turn to the person you're with and say, wow, isn't that beautiful? And what's going on from that transition from wonder to praise is that you were taking pleasure in what was going on. And this is Christ's response to this great faith. And notice how this faith pleases Christ, even that before Christ even responds in granting the request, he is first pleased with the faith. Similarly, parents, aren't you pleased when your children come to you? Instead of, like we said, taking matters into their own hands. When they come and ask for help, acknowledging their need. And even if you're not going to grant necessarily what they request, you're pleased that they came to you first. And so I think this should be a really wonderful encouragement to us, that whether or not we receive every request we ask of the Lord, he is pleased with the exercise of our faith. And isn't that our goal as Christians, to please God? We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. And what a wonderful way to be assured that we are pleasing God when we go to him with faith-filled prayer. God-pleasing faith is evidenced in persevering prayer, as Christ told us that we ought always to pray and not faint in Luke 18.1, we can be encouraged that if we're dealing and you're dealing today 
with a long-standing burden, a thorn that hasn't been removed, a consistent battle with indwelling sin, we can remember that Christ takes pleasure in our faith-filled prayers. Prayer is an exercise of faith, and faith is the most God-pleasing activity of man. It's the start and substance of all our religious devotion. But this faith isn't just found anywhere. Faith such as this is rare. Indeed, Christ says that he hasn't seen faith like this even in Israel. And therefore, by praising this insurance faith, he's at the same time rebuking the faith of the crowd. The ones that don't have faith like the centurion. Even those within the church. So don't be found among those faithless. Even you here today, don't be found among that generation that is offended at Christ or that seeks to stand before him on your own merits. We must empty ourselves if we will hear Christ's final commendation on the day of judgment. But Christ doesn't just stop at commending faith. He goes on and brings consolation to the faithful. So we see in our fourth point, Christ's consolation. First, we saw his commendation. Now we see that Christ responds with consolation. And what do I mean when I'm saying consolation? It's not a word we use as much anymore, but helpfully Webster's 1828 dictionary uh, describes consolation as one finding a comparative degree of happiness in distress or misfortune springing from any circumstance that one, abates the evil, or two, supports and strengthens the mind as hope, joy, courage, and the like. So we can see consolation can come in two ways. Either abating the evil, which we could say is solving the problem, or in strengthening the mind. Consolation can come in solving the problem or strengthening the person. And the thing is, we often desire the solution, but God more often grants the strength. And in the example of our text, though, we see a beautiful, miraculous answer to prayer. We read in verse 10 that they were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well that had been sick. What an amazing response from our Lord to faith-filled prayer. A miraculous display of Christ's divine power to bring healing to a paralyzed man. And similarly, we receive many answers to prayer. God is often pleased to grant us our requests, but how often are we like those nine lepers that don't come back to return thanks for what Christ has done for us. We need to be sensitive to our requests to God, tracking them, remembering to return thanks to our Lord. How often do you and I uh, go on a road trip driving in this sort of weather, and we pray that God would give us safety, but forget to return thanks to the Lord when we arrive safe at our destination? Uh, Just as another example, I have a friend who... She writes down answers to prayer she receives throughout the year, puts them in a jar in the kitchen, and on New Year's Eve gets to go through and recount all the Lord's blessings of answered prayer throughout the year. We don't need to adopt this practice, but we do need to be careful to remember the works of the Lord, what he's done for us, how he's helped us, that we may return thanks and praise to our wonderful creator. And so in this text, we do have a beautiful example of this first type of consolation, That of solving the problem, if you will. And even though what we're going to look at now is not in our text, I believe this is a question that does naturally arise from it. What happens when we don't receive this type of answer to prayer? What if the person we love who is sick and are praying for is not healed? 
Well, here's where I think we need to learn to join to our faith-filled prayer to God. We need to join faith-filled hope in God, in his promises. Remembering the promise of Psalm 29, 11, that the Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Or that of Psalm 31, 24, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. Let us not be discouraged when we don't receive that desired response from the Lord that we are so desperately hoping for. We can remember and be encouraged by the example of Christ, who himself didn't receive his request when he prayed in Luke 22, asking that the Father take the cup from him. He did have to drink the cup. But often missed, we read in verse 43 of Luke 22, that there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him, strengthening Christ. So to walk the footsteps of Christ's suffering is to walk where Christ has gone before us. It's to entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing good. It's to cast our cares upon Jehovah, knowing that he cares for us. And it takes great wisdom to know how to respond. And again, we are like children and parents. When your child comes to you with a sliver in their foot and asks to be delivered from this torment, you gladly comply and seek to remove it with tenderness and skill. But if they come to you asking you to relieve them of the burden of their math homework, you aren't going to remove it, but you will come along with a tender encouragement, with maybe assistance as you are able. And we often don't know what things in our life are slivers and what thing is math homework. And we need to trust the Father to give us what is needed in its time. We can trust him. He's more wise and loving than even the best parent. Puritan Henry Scudder expressed it most eloquently. And speaking of those who are in trials, who trust the Lord and do look to him for help and direction, he says, You may assuredly take comfort that all shall be for your good. He who brought you into this condition shall support you in it. He will either lighten the weight of your burden or strengthen the weakness of your shoulders. And so we can learn to say with the hymn writer, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. How wonderful it is to be a recipient of these manifold consolations of Christ. So we see a helpfully recorded portrait of great faith. We've seen in the examples of the centurion that faith is contrite, relinquishing all thoughts of self-worthiness, looking to Christ alone as the way to the Father. We've seen that great faith is convinced, convinced of Christ's power and authority, trusting him as the one to whom we can turn in all our trials. And we've seen Christ's response to faith, that he commends faith, delights in faith, takes pleasure in his people. And lastly, we've seen that Christ consoles the faithful, at times easing their burdens, at times strengthening their souls. And this Christian life is truly one of trials. We're always battling those twin devils of sin and suffering. And the believer's always going to be wrestling with one, if not both. And so our fight truly is the fight of faith. We are in need of faith daily, and as believers, we desire to grow in faith. So if you do trust in Christ, humbly and dependently go to God's word for instruction 
and his throne of grace for support. Believe his power. Trust his fatherly care. See how he takes pleasure in your faith and remember his tender mercies. Be steadfast in prayer, persevering under trials, thankful for every mercy received, constant in doing good, exercising unswerving faith in the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is necessary for living the Christian life, but it's also necessary for beginning the Christian life. If you would know Christ's consolation, if you would hear his commendation, then you need to acknowledge your sinfulness and unworthiness to come to God apart from Christ. You need to acknowledge Christ's complete authority over all, to submit your life to him, to give himself as a servant, that you might be dear unto him. Trust in Christ, trust in his goodness, his sacrifice for sin. The forgiveness is only obtained by faith. Call on him in faith even this very day, and remember that Christ promises in John 6, 37, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. You bestow it so wisely, and we are recipients of manifold mercies, those of us that have received such a gift. Would you teach us to exercise faith humbly but convincedly, that we might know your pleasure and that we might receive your consolation. Help us to trust you more and more day by day. We pray in the name of the Son. Amen.